Tonight we are looking at the passage I just read for you, Joshua chapter 1, or pardon me, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, all the way through to Joshua chapter 8 and verse 29, which relates to a man named Achan's sin and its effect on, in fact, the whole nation of Israel. I want you to use your imaginations with me, and if any kids are still awake, I'm looking here at the back, you can listen to this story and use your imaginations. Imagine that you are Achan, and the walls of Jericho fell, and you went in to go and kill, to fight as a soldier in this battle against Jericho. And you know, you know that Joshua had said that the Lord told all the soldiers, you can't leave anybody alive. You can't take anything. Nothing good that you see. You can't take any horses. You can't take any other livestock. You can't take any of the people's goods. The precious metals may be saved, but only to be put into the treasury of the Lord. The gold, the silver, etc. You take it, but you've got to turn it in be put in the treasury of the Lord. So you go in, you hear the ram's horns blow, and all the people give a great shout, and the wall falls, and you run in. And as you're going around, you see this beautiful cloak from the land of Shinar. You think to yourself, man, if I take this, I know I can't wear it tomorrow, because everyone will know it. But if I hide it for a little while, one day I can throw on this beautiful cloak from Shinar. And I'm just going to look so good, strutting through the land of Israel in this new cloak from Shinar. And lo and behold, there is a big piece of silver and a big piece of gold, which again, you know that you can't just turn around and sell tomorrow, or everyone's going to know that you got it in, from looting Jericho. But there are going to be more battles, and maybe we might be allowed to loot in further battles, and we could just later on just sort of launder the stolen silver and gold and say that you got it in another city, another battle. Who will know? You look left and right, and no one's with you. So you take the cloak, and you stuff it inside of your own cloak, and you take the silver and the gold bars and stuff them inside. And the battle of Jericho goes according to plan. Everyone in the city except Rahab and her household are killed. Whether it's the next day, whether it's a week later, a month later, we don't know. But eventually there's another battle coming up, which is against the city of Ai, which has about 12,000 people in it. Presumably this is a fairly small battle compared to the battle of Jericho, the spies who go to scout out say, we don't even need the whole fighting force to send 3,000 men up. So 3,000 men go up. But the people of Ai come out and defeat them. I thought the Lord was giving the land to the people of Israel. I thought Yahweh, the God of Israel, was greater than all the gods of Canaan. What's going on here? Why are the people of Israel being defeated? If you're Achan, maybe you're thinking, 
I wonder if the people of Israel are being defeated because of my sin. After all, Joshua had said, chapter 6 and verse 18, You keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. So your conscience starts to trouble you. And you realize that 36 men died. And though it's just 36 men out of a fighting force of several hundred thousand, nevertheless, those are people who died. You begin to wonder the thing, perhaps because of my sin. Because of the cloak that I took. Because of the silver that I took. Because of the gold that I took. Or you think to yourself, well, if I say, guys, I sinned. I took this stuff. People are going to be mad. People are going to be upset with me. Maybe I'll just keep it to myself and hope that this whole situation blows over. But that night, Joshua and all the elders of the Israel cry out to God. Interestingly, Joshua seems to fall prey to the general tenor of the Israelite murmuring and complaining. Does he not sound very much like the Israelites of the last 40 years? Why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Is this not? Why did you bring us up out of the land of Egypt to kill us? And This is the same thing. This is why the Lord says in verse 10, get up. Joshua has fallen prey, right? Is it, no leader is perfect. No leader but Jesus, right? Moses was a good leader, but he wasn't perfect. And in fact, he's not here in this scene because of his sin. He's already died because of his sin. Likewise, the Lord is with Joshua. We saw in, in uh, I believe it was last week, that Joshua is God's appointed man. Or two weeks ago, Joshua is God's appointed man to lead these people. But he too is a sinner. Anyway, that night Joshua cries out to the Lord, he and the elders of Israel, what's going on, Lord? We believe this narrative that you were taking care of us, that you were going to bring us into the promised land, that you were greater than all the gods of Canaan, just as you were greater than all the gods of Egypt. Why have we been defeated? Why have we fallen? Well, you, Achan, are in your tent. You don't know exactly what's going on, but you've seen Joshua and all the elders go into the tent of meeting. You know that they're discussing together and praying and meeting with God. And they come out and they say, Tomorrow, we're going to find out who sinned. Tomorrow, we're going to find out what's going on here. We're going to get to the bottom of this situation. Joshua or pardon me, Achan, probably felt a great sense of anxiety, fear, and trepidation in thinking about what was going to happen tomorrow. Again, he could come forth with his sin. He could go meet with Joshua and the elders and say, listen, there's no need to go through all the rigmarole of drawing lots. I know who sinned. It was me. But Achan doesn't say anything. Well, the next day they cast lots, and first of all, a tribe was taken, and then a clan, and then a family. And then we read 
that Joshua brought near Zabdi's household man by man in Joshua 7 verse 18 and Achan the son of Carmi the son of Zabdi was taken now in front of all the people of Israel it becomes clear that the reason Israel lost in this initial battle against Ai was because of your sin because of what you did because you coveted the cloak because you coveted the silver and the gold you've been caught well there's only one thing to do now as he says in chapter 7 and verse 20 truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel this is what I did he makes a confession I'm not saying that his confession wasn't genuine there's nothing in the text actually to indicate that his confession was not genuine. There's nothing here that sort of implies that he was not sincere or contrite. It's very possible that his confession was. It's also very possible that he's only confessing now because he's got caught and he's been forced to. I've seen it many, many, many times in situations in the church where someone conceals a sin for a long time and then only confesses when they're caught and time proves that there actually is no real repentance it's just you've got to call a spade a spade you got caught so we don't we don't know we don't really know this confession might have been sincere might not have been but at this point he makes a confession they take him verse 24 of chapter 7 and it says the silver, the cloak, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, donkeys, sheep, his tent, all that he has. His nuclear family members and everyone. They take him out and they stone them and they burn everything in the Valley of Achor. And then Israel goes to fight Ai again and Israel overwhelmingly defeats Ai. This is what happens in this passage. Now here is the key to understanding this passage. And I've mentioned it already. Joshua 6.18 Joshua tells the people Keep yourselves from the things devoted to, cons- to destruction lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble on it. This is why Israel lost the first battle at Ai. It's because Achan took the devoted things and made the camp of Israel a thing devoted for destruction and brought trouble upon it. There was, by God's prescription, in this case, a corporate guilt incurred for the whole nation of Israel when one Israelite sinned in this matter. If one Israelite sinned in this matter, as he did, Achan, God would hold the whole nation liable. And the whole nation would become a thing devoted to destruction. I don't think we should go down the road of assigning corporate guilt haphazardly. 
or in a generous manner, generous proportion, as some are doing these days. But corporate guilt or liability is not a category that we should write off a priori. In other words, prior to considering it on a case-by-case basis. Corporate guilt is a tricky thing. Is what one white man does, or what many white men do, grounds to consider white guilt a thing? Is what one black man does, or what many black men do, grounds to consider all black men guilty? No. I think on those questions we have to say no. But what about when someone acting in an official capacity on behalf of a company harms someone? Does the company bear liability? Yes, sometimes. Likewise, diplomatic officials and soldiers act on behalf of a country when operating internationally. And their actions have consequences and sometimes start or aggravate international conflicts. Or conversely, a, the actions of an individual can actually de-escalate conflicts and bring things to resolution at times because he is acting on behalf of a larger body. And so the liability of the larger body sometimes is tied to the acts of an individual. Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, which providentially was read this morning at Berean Bible Church when I was there, is a biblical example of one person confessing sin on behalf of a group. Daniel says in chapter 9 and verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from Your commandments and Your rules. We have not listened to Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land, etc., etc. Listen, who, who are the most righteous guys in the Bible? We know, ultimately speaking, with regard to justification, there is none righteous, no, not one. But Daniel's on the short list. There, there's a passage where God says, even if Daniel names a couple other guys were in this land, it'd still be an abomination. Look, Daniel is a righteous guy. Daniel actually himself, individually, is noteworthy for listening to the prophets. For listening to God. And yet Daniel confesses this sin. We have not listened to your prophets. So it's not just a legal liability thing that happens in modern jurisprudence. It's this biblical precedent for this concept of corporate guilt. Daniel 9 is an example, Ezra, Nehemiah, and here in Joshua chapter 7, we see corporate guilt. This passage in Daniel chapter, pardon me, in Joshua chapter 7 and others further corroborate the idea that at least in some cases there is such a thing 
as corporate guilt in God's eyes. And this is this is what is happening in this narrative. Achan sins at the Battle of Jericho, and so the nation of Israel loses their first battle at Ai. It's not until the nation addresses the evil in its midst that the Lord considers them, considers the situation resolved, and blesses them with His victorious power and presence. Again, this is what's happening in this passage. Simple as that. That's what's going on. Now, in terms of some applications of this passage, it's not hard to understand. But what does it mean for us? What does it have to do with us in the 21st century? First, I think we should note the strictness of God. Again, we have no reason to believe that Achan was not sincere when he finally confessed his sin when he was taken by law. We should not be unfair to him and presume that he was not sincere. There's no textual indicator that the reason that he was stoned was because he was not truly repentant. We should therefore note the strictness of God in killing a presumably repentant man and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his livestock and burning up everything that he had. God is serious business. Remember like we talked about last week. God has every prerogative to end the lives of those whose lives he began. God commands that Achan's whole family be killed here. It's very severe. It offends our modern sensibilities. Especially if we might be inclined to charitably look upon Achan's repentance and say it was sincere. It was legitimate. He confessed. That's what we want, isn't it? It offends our modern sensibilities then that God would say, well, nevertheless, take him out to the valley and kill him. Stone him. Listen, don't forget that though forgiveness before God is one aspect and one dynamic that is necessary to consider and to seek when sin has occurred. Don't forget that there is also such a thing as civil liability. And even when someone might be forgiven by God, sometimes the right thing is still for the state to follow through on the death penalty. And in this particular case, Israel was a theocracy, and so there was very much a intermingling and blending and, and a, a less clear delineation between church and state than we have in our current situation today. But here we see at least a civil penalty, if not also a religious penalty, occurring. We don't know whether Achan perhaps was forgiven by God. He seemed not to die in the same sort of hard-hearted way that Korah and Dathan died when they were swallowed up by the ground. It seems that Achan was softer than those men. It's possible that God forgave him and welcomed him to heaven 
when he died and that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. And yet, nevertheless, God commanded the people of Israel to separate his soul from his body by stoning. I read this past week a very moving article about a man named Will Spear who's on death row in Texas. And he killed a man when he was 16 and went to jail. And while he was in jail, he killed another man when he was 22. And at that time, incurred the death penalty. And he was set to be executed this past Thursday. And I read the article on Wednesday. It seems at some point that he has become a sincere brother in Christ, which is really wonderful. And over, I believe it was the last decade or so, he's been living a a markedly different life and really trying to tell others about the grace and forgiveness in Christ. And he said he's he's left the thug life for the hug life. (laughs) And he, he, uh, he realized one time when his one of his attorneys gave him a hug, that that was the first hug he had had in something like seven years. And so he began uh, hugging the other inmates and just encouraging everybody to spread affection and kindness to one another and so on and so forth. And it seems there are just many ways in which the story is really just a beautiful story of God's forgiveness, of God's grace, of the way God transforms a man, and so on and so forth. He was appealing for his execution to be stayed and to be granted clemency on account of uh, some legal, uh, I don't want to say loopholes, that makes it sound bad, but in terms of some stuff that maybe it wasn't done according to due process in the trial, as well as on the basis of the changed life. And there's part of me that is really rooting for Will Spirit to get clemency. But there's another part of me that thinks back about Genesis, even prior to the Old Covenant, where God tells Noah after they come out of the ark that moving forward, if a man sheds another man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. And this is a principle of retribution that God has woven into not Mosaic law, but natural law. And it is actually the job of the state to carry out such retributive justice. And while a man may be forgiven in God's eyes, as, a, as far as I can tell, it seems Will Spear has been, nevertheless, it's not the state's job to minister mercy and grace. It's the state's job to bear the sword, to minister strict justice. Turns out that his execution was uh, delayed, at least. Uh, It was supposed to happen this past Thursday, and it did not. So I don't know what the future outcome of that will be. But I was thinking about that this week as I was thinking about God commanding that Achan be killed, even though we have every reason to believe that he was truly repentant by the time that or at the time that his sin was exposed. Some people think that a God who would institute the death penalty 
for all mankind. And a God who would consider that retributive justice which exceptions should not be made to. And a God who would command a repentant Achan to be taken out to the valley and stoned is not the God of the Bible. But the reality is, when you read the Bible, you actually look at it, this is God. And we must not commit the Marcionite heresy, which was named after Marcion, who posited essentially two different deities, the God of the Old Testament and, and the God of the New. We must not adopt any sort of concept of change in God from the Old Testament to the New, whereby as society progresses and becomes more enlightened, so God progresses and becomes more enlightened. Paris is up. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the strict God of the Old Testament is the same God that we see in the New Testament. What this means for us practically is that the final judgment is a time that, at which it will be too late for confession and repentance. When the lots have been cast, as it were, and the guilt is found out, you stand before God as Achan did, exposed and condemned and guilty, you may say, as Achan did, truly I have sinned. You may say, and this is what I did, and own it all. But at that time, it will be too late. God requires us to get things right today. God requires us to get things right before that final judgment day. There is such a thing as 11th hour repentance. There is such a thing as deathbed conversions. Believers J.C. Riley said, Believe me, though, they're exceedingly rare. Paraphrasing, of course. He said, I've been at many, many, many a deathbed. And I found this principle true that almost always people die in the manner that they have lived. So don't presume upon it. But also know that though 11th hour repentance is legitimate, know that there is a time when the clock strikes midnight and the assignment is late, that the time is up, that the hourglass runs out. And if then all of a sudden you say, okay, now that I've been caught, now that the time's run out, truly I have sinned, God may say, listen, depart from me, I never knew you. Too little, too late. So mark here the strictness of God. Make peace with God in Christ Jesus before it is too late. More on that in a moment. A second point of application. The people of Israel did not know that Achan had sinned in this way. They were not failing to deal with Achan's sin in any culpable way. 
they bore a corporate guilt because Achan sinned, simply because God said if any individual sins, the whole nation will be held liable and responsible. But there was no way in which they were defaulting on their responsibilities to deal with Achan's sin prior to the time that they became aware of it. Likewise, when we think about church discipline, we're not responsible for failing to deal with sins that we don't know about. But look here. When Achan's sin was exposed, and when God said, now this is how you have to deal with it, what was the responsibility of Israel? It was to deal with it. To do what God had said to do. Now if they said, you know, we do respect what the Lord says. You know, we appreciate the wisdom that He does have as the Ancient of Days. You know, but we really believe in grace. We really believe in mercy. We're, we don't really want to be legalistic. We want to be a community in which everybody is accepted and welcomed. And where no one feels uncomfortable. So, you know, we do, we do respect those who differ with us in this matter. But we're just not going to stone Achan. Look, at that point, the people of Israel become doubly liable. They bear the corporate guilt for Achan's sin. As God had said that if an individual sins, the whole nation would become guilty. But they add guilt to that by actually now sinning themselves in failing to deal with Achan's sin, which has now been exposed. I was racking my brain trying to think about if there is anything in Scripture that would lead us to believe that God holds a church accountable for the sin of an individual in the church that has not yet been exposed. I don't think so. I think in that way, the principle differs. Where God held the nation of Israel responsible for Achan's sin, even prior to that sin having been exposed, and removed His sanction, His, his empowering presence from them, I don't think, I say that cautiously, but I don't think that there is an example of a text that would instruct us otherwise with respect to the sin of an individual in the church prior to it being exposed. So I'm not saying that there's correspondence in that respect, but I would say this. As Israel had a responsibility to deal with Achan's sin when it was exposed, so the church has a responsibility to deal with the sin of individuals in it when that sin has been exposed. We are not at liberty to be more gracious than God. So when God has instructed us to practice church discipline, we have to be diligent in carrying that out. And this is not a sermon on church discipline per se, so I'm not going to go into all the nuts and bolts of that. But we should simply strengthen our consciences. That's one thing we should do with this passage. We should strengthen our consciences in terms of our resolve to practice church discipline, to deal with sin in our midst. And that it's not ungracious or unbecoming of God's covenant people to deal with sin in our midst. In fact, from the time that it is exposed, that's what God actually requires us to do. And to fail to do so would actually be to sin ourselves.
And this is often an obstacle to the practice of church discipline in our modern Western society because of our modern conditioning in terms of the way we think about God, the the way we think about holiness and strictness and grace and so on and so forth. We have to think biblically on matters such as this. Now, here is the ultimate application of this passage. You remember when David sinned many years after this in the matter of Bathsheba, and he covered it up even having Uriah, her husband, killed, who incidentally was one of his mighty men. Did you notice that when we read that passage a couple of weeks ago? Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of David's trusted guys, one of his best soldiers, one of David's elite forces, a guy that David trusted with his life and a guy that proved himself to be trustworthy with David's life. David had this guy killed. Anyway, he sealed this up and then Nathan comes to him, tells him the story and what's the punchline of the story? You are the man. You are the man. Essentially, that's what happens here in this passage, isn't it? Chapter 7 and verse 18. Joshua brought near of Zabdi's household, man by man. So which man was it? And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. In other words, as they were brought forth man by man, eventually statement came forth implicitly to Achan, you are the man. If we consider who among us is guilty of sin, perhaps we're not all guilty of the exact same specific sins. But if we were to consider who is simply guilty of sin, guess what? You are the man. You are the man. You are the man. You are the man. Right? We're all Achans. Strictly speaking, who here doesn't deserve to be taken out to the valley of Achor and stoned to death? As we read ourselves into this story, We shouldn't read ourselves into this story in the place of the non-guilty Israelites. And say, well, yes, there are Achans among us. Thank God that I am not them. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like those people over there. The Gentiles, the tax collectors, the Achans. I fast, I give tithes of all I get. I don't steal cloaks from Shinar. Right? You see, that's the Pharisee, the parable in Luke 18. The place that we should read ourselves into this story is Achan's place. And in Luke 18, in the position of the man who wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we think about the strictness of last judgment, 
in the fact that God will find out and uncover and expose every evil deed. We need to reckon on the fact that on that last day, your lot will be taken and my lot will be taken. And each one of us will stand under that same condemning statement. You are the man. We're all going to be a bunch of Aikens. All of a sudden with that awful sinking feeling that our sin has been exposed. That we can hide it no longer. We can play games no longer. What Jesus did was essentially to take the place of Achan on our behalf. Notice that if they sinned by taking the things devoted to destruction, it's the exact same Hebrew word used in chapter 6 and verse 17. Sorry, uh, yeah, 7, no, 18. Chapter 6 and verse 18. Joshua says, Keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction lest you make the camp of Israel a thing devoted to destruction. It's the same word used. If they were to sin, they themselves would become devoted to destruction the way that they were supposed to destroy all the people in these towns and cities and so on and so forth in the conquest. Achan became a thing devoted to destruction, didn't he? What Jesus did was He came to take our place. To go out to the valley of Achor, as it were. To be stoned and burned on my behalf. On your behalf. Because we had, each of us, incurred guilt. We each deserved to have the wrath of God poured out upon us. But Jesus came to take that, to absorb that into Himself, to propitiate the wrath of God, which means to turn His wrath away from us, to draw it to Himself, to take our punishment in our place. It didn't happen literally in this passage. It's not as if in this moment when Achan was condemned, all of a sudden the Lord Jesus stepped up to take me to the valley of Achor instead. But conceptually and theologically, what I'm explaining to you is that we are like Achan, those who have sinned. And if we do not confess our sin now, one day our sin will be exposed. And we are, because of our sin, liable to judgment, as Achan was. But what Jesus has come to do is to bear the guilt, to bear the punishment that is ours in our place. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here, implicitly at the cross, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate we see in Joshua chapter 7 what sin deserves. We see at the cross, J 
Jesus taking that punishment in the place of sinners. Trust in Him before it's too late. Call on Him while He may be found, as the psalmist says, before the rushing waters overtake you.